to the Big Let Go podcast. I am your host, Monica Fay. I am a professional organizer and declutter expert, and I am passionate about where mental wellness, emotional health, and physical mess intersect. I'm so excited about our episode today because this is the first episode in the Big Let Go creator series. I am an artist myself. I am an author, a painter, Um, And I also enjoy performing arts. I love singing, maybe not that great at it, but I'm trying to get better. (laughs) And I know that being a professional organizer and an artist, being a declutter expert and a creator and someone who has ADHD, it is so important for me to hear other stories about how creators, authors, artists are letting go and getting organized or being productive in their creativity or through ADHD and creativity. We have an incredible guest today to kick this series off on the Big Let Go, and I can't wait for you all to hear her story. We have legend Jennifer Ashley Tepper in our space today. Jennifer Ashley Tepper is an acclaimed Broadway producer, historian, and author. She is the author of four volumes of the Untold Stories of Broadway book series, which has been called an inspiring must-read by NBC New York, and it, it was the number one spot on Amazon's bestseller list in Broadway and musicals. She's also the producer of the musicals Be More Chill, Broadway Bounty Hunter, and Love and Hate Nation. And her recent projects that are part of a decade-long collaboration with the group known as the Joe Iconison Family. She is also the creative and program director of 54 Below in New York City. And she has curated or produced over 3,000 shows. Some of your favorite songs and are sung on these stages at 54 Below. Some of your favorite artists have graced these stages there. And they might have been under um, Jennifer Ashley Tepper and her direction. On Broadway, she's also worked on the title of show, The Performers, Godspell, Macbeth, and The Parisian Woman. She's the conceiver and director of the Jonathan Larson Project, and she was a historian consultant on the movie Tick, Tick, Boom, which was directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda on Netflix. And she's the co-creator of the Bistro Award-winning concert series, If It Only Ever Runs a Minute. And she recently won the 2020 Lincoln Center Emerging Artists Award. She is incredible. I need you to hear her story and dig into her mind a little bit. So I'd like to welcome Jennifer Ashley Tepper to our show. Oh my goodness. I don't even know where to start with you. I mean, I do know where to start with you, but I just, you have so much going on and you're just, I feel like every time I check in with what you're doing, you have taken on something not just like a fun, small project. You're like, Hey, I'm going to leap into something huge and then I'm going to dominate it. Like you're incredible. (laughs) That's so nice. No, I really appreciate that. Honestly, I I do feel like that kind of multitasking and um, taking on big projects at the same time characterizes my career and my personality. Um, But it's been a bit less. So obviously, you know, the pandemic changed all of our lives in so many ways. And then, um, you know, running 54 Below as the programming director during the pandemic has required a lot more of my like focus and professional bandwidth than previously. So at the moment, I'm not doing as many projects as uh, I usually do, but I'm sure that could change in the near future. Well, also just running a program the way you do, there's so many moving pieces. And I, I feel like now that you're 
really settle into your expertise in that, it might not feel as big, but someone coming into what you do is probably incredibly overwhelming. Just all those moving pieces. And yeah, you know, it's totally unlike anything else because 54 Below as a venue is unlike anywhere else. And, you know, we do 14 shows every week and sometimes there are 14 different shows. Um, and, you know, we're never closed any day of the year. So it's never a dull moment. And um, there's always a million different things to handle with shows that are as different as like a solo concert, a musical and concert, a new writer. Um, there's always just a lot of different moving pieces, as you said. And with, you know, COVID times, it can be anything from oh my God, my drummer has COVID. I can't do the show then. And me needing to find an emergency replacement for a show that's, you know, very soon. Um, or it can be, oh, because of COVID, my other job changed in this way. So now I need to change this show in this way. So it's just, it, I mean, it's like a constant puzzle even more than usual. And I, I definitely enjoy having all the tabs open um, in my computer and in my brain to deal with so many different people and different types of um, issues about the performance at the same time. But it's, it's expanded in recent times. <laughs> I feel like there's two different people in the world. There are people that have maybe three tabs open, five tabs open, and they're responsible tab users. They close them out. And then there's the people that, you know, maybe like us who have 74 on one browser and then maybe the save tab that you never go into, but you, you're going to save it anyway. <laughs> It's so true. And I really do think of it like tabs. Um, it's I've had to, you know, we all have to do this, but I've had to make a conscious choice when I want to just be doing one thing, by which I mean, like, let's just watch this movie and we're not going to do anything else as opposed to like, okay, I'm going to watch this movie, but I could also like clean all my earrings and return these texts and like pay attention to what's going on when it's, it's so much of like, do I want to be doing multiple things at a time? Is that fitting what I need to do right now? for me and my job and everything else, or do I want to be doing one thing right now? I, I love what you just said, because I think that, that there is a clear distinction there that a lot of us, especially creatives or people with ADHD or people who had just have so much going on, they feel overwhelmed. It's like learning to discern what is multitasking that will benefit the thing you're doing now or might have something that's like a relief for you, your brain. Like I, I want to do several things at once because it feels good to my brain or it's necessary of the job. And then multitasking that might um, be a detriment to what we're trying to do where it's like too many, too many, you know, hands in the pot or too many activities going on or even too many things in our hands at once. Cause sometimes I'll be carrying something, trying to do another task and it's just like overwhelming. And so I think like, you know, just figuring out what um, what will benefit us if we multitask and what's just going to create more chaos is something, totally. you know, to have that conversation with ourselves. Totally. And from a macro sense, I mean, I feel like in general, as a producer, as a theater historian, all the hats I wear, um, they do feed each other in a really helpful way. I find that um, for me, you know, if I'm focusing on, you know, making some shows happen and putting together pieces for live performance, and then I can step away and I have some time where I'm like writing and then I have some time where I'm researching, um, you know, it's nice to have a balance of different tasks to do and different projects to work on that feed each other both literally with like, you know, oh, I booked Patty LuPone at 54 Below, so now I get to interview her because we have, you know, a professional relationship, like that kind of, or, you know, 
all the things of like, oh, I, you know, understand sound designers more because I've interviewed them and now I'm hiring a sound designer for a show I'm producing. So it's that literal kind of feeding of each other. But it's also like for your heart and your brain to go, oh, I'm, you know, interested in different things. I, I feel like I want to use my talent in different things. How can I on a daily basis or on a weekly basis insert them so that I don't get burned out? Because if I'm not doing one thing, I'm focusing on something else. What would you say to other artists, creatives, um, people who are in Broadway, maybe even people working on the backstage of Broadway, what would be something that you would recommend to, for them to learn how to eliminate the unimportant things so that they can focus on the important when there's so many moving pieces in this industry? That's a great question. I mean, it's super specific to each job, right? So it's like, you know, obviously, mm-hmm. like, if you're a house manager, like, your first thing is, like, safety, right? So it's, it's something like, uh, you know, or if you're, um, you know, a lawyer, your first priority is probably, like, what is legal? <laughs> so I think, you know, yeah. on, a, on a technical sense, it's like, you know, knowing what the most important first priority for your job and why you're doing your job is, um, like, what is that? And whether it's, like, making sure that everyone is comfortable at the end of the day. Um, it's not almost, it's almost never going to be like making sure it's the best show possible, if that makes sense. And that's something I think we've all been thinking about a lot in the theater. It's like, as a dancer, your first priority is to like, make sure you're not hurting your body or anyone else's body, keeping yourself safe. Like in so many ways, like we know safety is the first priority, whether it's like legal safety, like I said, or like fire safety. Um, So just like kind of keeping an eye on like what's really important at your core and making sure that those things are pinned down, that you feel good in the environment, that you know the answers to questions that you would need to know in like, you know, an emergency situation, like doing the things that are really like foundational to let yourself open up your creativity or open up you know next level kind of skills at the job um just like not forgetting those basic things first i love that because it's basically you're saying that you want to come you want to come back to source when things start to get chaotic go back to that main source that main thing that main purpose of you being there and what you're really trying to do and grounding yourself i think yeah, just grounding yourself back in what you, what the purpose is. Cause we can just, everything can get so out of hand, especially when there's so many moving pieces. Totally. Um, and I wanted to ask you, you have um, an extensive background in theater. It goes all the way back to your childhood. Uh, you grew up in Florida, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's where I live currently. I'm in uh, Clearwater right now. So when oh, I saw yeah, that, Clearwater. I was like, oh. <laughs> Florida. Yeah. yeah. Where, were you, where were you from in Florida? Um, I grew up in Boca Raton, so South Florida. Mm-hmm. I loved growing up there. Yeah, it's beautiful down there. Um, so when you when you started in theater, um, did you know that you wanted a career in this? And how did you build your work ethic, that focus um, that started in theater at a young age and just progressed into the, all these other pieces? What was that like for you? You know, I was so obsessed with theater from the first moments that I was exposed to it. Um, no one in my family worked in theater. You know, everyone in my family was in medicine, but uh, big fans of the theater. You know, like my dad is a doctor, but he will never stop singing, you know, a cast recording from a show we would see. My mom was always taking me to theater camp and, um, you know, getting me cast recordings for Hanukkah and all that good stuff. So I was very, like, lucky to be supported by my family. But, you know, no one had ever done it professionally. And for me, I loved being part of a cast. Like, I loved um, in high school 
school theater, I loved practicing a song and like being part of a company and putting together a show together. But I kind of knew that like professional performing was not for me. I kept saying, you know, when I was growing up, I wanted to be the theater. Um, I just really wanted to uh, do something that involved like theater history and making new theater. And I was definitely like, you know, my summer camp friends and I talk about this now as a career origin story. But anytime I would discover a new musical, usually via like a cast recording or seeing a local Florida production, um, I would have to share it with everyone. But, you know, I would burn a CD and then I would like print out a plot synopsis and give it to my fellow theater nerd teenagers. Um, So I was already kind of doing like a prototype musical theater historian job. Um, And that definitely evolved, you know, professionally. I just wanted to like be in a support position to make new musicals happen and to celebrate uh, historic musicals and really like with a focus on underappreciated musicals. So I had, um, you know, a number of heroes growing up who I had read their books like Ted Chapin or um, just admired their work from afar, like Ira Weitzman. And I just thought, you know, I want to be one of those people who doesn't fit an exact mold, who isn't like an actor or a costume designer, but who kind of has to create their own path in aligning these interests. Yeah. I love, I I love that progression. It's like you as an artist, you can still be the artist, but it manifests in this way that you may still be a writer or all those other parts, but then the creation becomes opening up that space for people to do their thing in the, in the way they need to do it. And I think that's just as important, like as an artist and a creator um, to create that space because you know, all of the talent in the world can learn acting and singing and dancing. Where are you going to do it? What's the direction? (laughs) Who are are we putting in? How does it go? And I just, oh, I think that's phenomenal. Was there ever, um, what job or project have you ever worked on that made you, um, I guess, question your process or conditioning from the past where you had to buck the system or what you knew before and learn in a different way. Have you ever been in a project like that where you're like, you're learning from maybe mentors or the people around you, the project to become better at what you do, uh, maybe organizationally or just the way you run things or casting or anything like that, um, that just, you're like, oh, this is not the way I learned it. And this is, you know, something that changes the game for me. Yeah, that's such a good, good question. You know, I feel like that's a lot of projects. I feel like the thing with theater, and this is the reason why, like, no one can really ever predict what show will be a hit or, like, what team will work together again. Um, Every show is kind of like its own startup and its own business and its own completely unique set of, um, you know, situations, whether it's, like, the season you opened in or, you know what's going on in the world at the time. Like there's just so many different factors that make each show a unique learning experience and just a unique experience. Um, Definitely, you know, producing Be More Chill was one of the most unique. I, you know, have spent a decade collaborating with Joe Iconis, who's a musical theater writer I work with frequently and our whole family of artists. And, um, you know, I think his work is the greatest work being written right now. I, I think his shows are incredible. And it's just a matter of circumstances of, oh, like, you know, we got this show to go out of town, but like you do need a positive New York Times review in order to get people to give you money to 
produce a show in New York. Like that's just sadly the way that the system works most of the time. And so um, for years, you know, we spent a lot of time doing so many like shows and concerts and out of town tryouts and Be More Chill happened not because we got the Good New York Times review. In fact, like, you know, in 2015, we now famously known like got a bad New York Times review and the show was like closing out of town and not moving anywhere because of it. And some very wonderful donors from that theater at Two River gave the money to do a cast album. And that cast album like took off on the internet. It's well documented now, completely virally. Um, no one could have done anything to control that. But what we could do after it started happening and after, you know, the show began becoming like a unprecedented internet sensation, people like loving the music all over the world, seeking out like amateur productions because they loved the show so much is figure out how to harness that to bring the show to New York in an unconventional way because it already had this kind of unconventional existing path. Um, So that was, you know, the experience from 2015 and even before that while Joe was developing the show and the rest of the creative team was as well to bringing it to off-Broadway, to bringing it to Broadway. It was, you know, this has never happened before, but also, you know, the internet is always evolving as a component in this whole like Broadway sphere um I always think of like you know the Jason Robert Brown sensation songs for New World and if the internet had existed the way it does now back then that would have been the be more chill of its time and you know gone to Broadway based on its you know music viral sensation-ness um so yeah I mean it was me spending a decade kind of working for producers and kind of learning how to raise money and hire a team and be in a room making decisions about advertising and casting and all these things. I, I was prepared and it was the ultimate like, oh, when the moment came and you never know when the moment is going to come, being prepared and being ready and, you know, being able to handle what happens. But every step of the way, it was like, well, normally shows do this, but we didn't have that. So could we do this? It was that every day, just kind of making up different ways of, um, you know, doing things that probably shows wouldn't have done or wouldn't have had to do and getting creative because of how our path got us to Broadway. I love that. Yeah. Technology's really changed the game for every, every industry. Um, are there any other, I know that you love, um, certain shows that, that you feel like need to have more, um, you know, I guess you want more eyes on it. You want people to appreciate it more. Are there any other shows from the past that you just wish, and you mentioned one earlier, that you just wish had had the internet at its back when it was going on, <laughs> when its first run went on? That's such a good question, too. You know, I a number of years ago, um, I put together this concert at 54 Below of a show called Racial Lily Rosenblum and Don't You Ever Forget It, which closed in Broadway previews in the 70s. Um, and mm-hmm. our performances of it were the very first time that the show had ever been performed since closing in previews in 1973. Um, it starred yeah. like Ellen Green, who went on to do Little Shop of Horrors. It was written by like Paul Jabara, who went on to write um, It's Raining Men and Last Dance. Um, and our concert at 54 Below, like it starred Bonnie Milligan, who's catapulted to fame since oh. then, all these other other phenomenal people um and I put it together with my um collaborators Max Friedman and Charlie Rosen and we like recreated the script and the score it was a magical experience um and it was that incredible theater ephemeral thing of like we did it twice we recorded it on video so it's on YouTube but you know we didn't get to do a cast album or anything like that and it happened and it was great and it was a wonderful experience since over and I think shows like that have always fascinated me they have so much you know that show is 
its own whole thing. It was like kind of the first disco musical. It's really campy and um, really fun. And shows for me, I've always been fascinated by that closed in Broadway previews or closed after just a few performances on Broadway that made it all the way to freaking Broadway and that like nobody knows. Um, yeah. You know, I, I'm a big fan of the idea that like different people love different things. There's not like a really bad show and a really good show. It's like, I love that. You love that. And that's something I love about theater. So how awesome would it be to kind of resurrect and explore some of these shows that had all the wherewithal to like get all the way to New York City to Broadway and nobody mm -hmm. remembers now. Um, I've always been kind of obsessed with doing some of the other shows that closed very early or in previews. Um, I'm just like, someday we'll get to do them widely again. <laughs> Well, there's, there's a space for it now, you know, in, in the original runs, it's like, it, it was what it was. And then if it doesn't keep running, then it just ends. And now there's a space and an audience for everything. And it doesn't always have to be what's been the most successful or what's, you know, it, it can be revisited again. I think, yeah, I just think it's, uh, we're in a really unique time. Um, totally. It's also, I yeah. mean, so many, so much of the time things were ahead of their time in certain ways or, and that's maybe part of the reason why they didn't succeed, um, whether it's like musically or in terms of content. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons why Encores is one of my favorite parts of New York City and favorite things to attend. They do such an incredible job of like resurrecting these underappreciated musicals. And I've always um, been really excited about like going deep into, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, some of the lesser known stuff from that era. Absolutely. Um, so I want to talk to you about your, uh, your being an author and historian. Mm -hmm. I mean, those, I mean, they kind of go hand in hand. Once you're doing research, you got to write it down somewhere. You have to make it, you know, present it in a way that people understand and, and whether that be through movies or television or a show or writing. And, um, I wanted to just tell us about your process, how you got into, becoming a historian and a researcher, um, was it because of the work you had already done and you naturally did that research in order to, because you are so passionate about this industry or how did that come about for you? You know, it was definitely taking a passion and turning it into a job without knowing if you'll, you know, ever get paid for that job or be, you know, considered a professional at that job, just kind of taking the leap because it's something you love and want to kind of share knowledge about. Um, I was very lucky when I was uh, in college at NYU to have an internship with the writers of the musical title of show. And then right mm -hmm. after college, that show went to Broadway. I got to be the director's assistant. And it was like, you know, a very formative, uh, life-changing experience for me. Um, and I, during a lot of that time, I got to be with like fellow theater nerds, but who were like a little bit older than me, kind of in a mentor type situation, who, um, you know, I really got that part of myself like, it flourished during that time. And I remember Jeff Bowen, the uh, composer lyricist and I would run around at the Lyceum, uh, not run, sorry, St. Chance. We would walk around calmly at the Lyceum um, and we would explore different corners of the theater and talk about shows that had played the Lyceum before and, um, you know, research you know, details about them. And that really stoked a fire in my brain. And I thought, you know, someday I would love to write a book that's like at this theater um, from Playbill, that column that I love, but that is populated with individual people's stories about the shows and that connect the physical spaces through like, I was in this dressing room. I was also in this dressing room. Like, here's a story about this orchestra pit from 1970. And here's a story about it from 1945. Um, and I started percolating that idea in my head. 
And then um, at the time, you know, I have done for many, many years this concert series that celebrates underappreciated musicals called If It Only Even Runs a Minute. And I, um, you know, create those with my collaborator, Kevin Michael Murphy, and we write these scripts that um, tell all these stories about the shows and, you know, the details of what they were. And so um, one of my future publishers came to attend one of those shows and went, wait, would you ever want to write a book? And instead of pitching her a book about underappreciated musicals, I was like, I had this idea about like a personal book about stories about the theaters that are theater by theater and like connect to everyone throughout time. Um, and that's how Untold Stories of Broadway was born. It was really, again, kind of like having the preparedness and having thought about it. And then when the opportunity came, being there for it. Um, and also, you know, we thought it would be one book and what it turned into is like such a huge, it's, you know, there's four published books. Four. Um, there'll be, four. Yeah, there's four. Um, there'll be two more eventually because, you know, that's how many it took to, to really do all the theaters. Each book has a number of existing theaters and then one or two like lost Broadway theaters in it. And so it became clear as I started to do interviews that it would need to um, be a number of volumes just in order to include uh, such a variety of artists and people from different years and backgrounds and theaters um yeah it all was just kind of born from you know being a sweet little theater nerd and a youngin and then kind of taking it on the professional way so the books are called the untold stories of broadway and there are currently four volumes so listeners if you want to hear these incredible stories um from Broadway stars in, in everybody on Broadway, basically, uh, you need to go check these out on Amazon. And I wanted to ask you, is there any particular story as you're doing these interviews that you were just floored by and it sticks in your mind? I know there's a lot of incredible stories because you curated this collection, but is there anything that one or two that you just really stood out to you? Um, you know, something I've been thinking about a lot recently is, you know, I started doing these interviews in 2013. And so it's been almost a mm -hmm. decade. And sadly, you know, a significant number of the now almost 300 interviewees that I've um, spoken with have passed away. So we have a number yeah. of stories now um, from people who had wonderful, you know, amazing careers in the theater. And what they kind of gave to me and us as like a gift and untold stories are like some of their last yeah interviews and and kind of tales and bits of wisdom and um you know in the most recent book which i wrote during the lockdown really which was an experience in itself um the end of that book sorry spoiler alert if you haven't read it but the end of that book um are just a series of stories and quotes from folks that are no longer with us who are in the book um and you get you know everything from one of my favorite stories um hal prince who's like my hero um he talks a lot about like the next generation of artists and one of my favorite stories of his his in the book is about how when he was a young assistant stage manager, he had to go on as an understudy one night, just like there was nobody left. He had to go on and he tells the whole story of, um, you know, all the musicians like tapping their uh, music stands for him and how humiliating the whole experience was. He tells it in a very comedic way, but being a huge like Hal Prince super nerd and having read every story he's ever told kind of about his huge landmark musicals, I was like, oh my God, here's like a, a rare and inspiring young person Hal Prince story that like I had never even heard before. So having that in the book is a big treat. But there's a lot of, um, I think, really moving stuff in the books um, from people of all different jobs and, and walks of life. Um, I'll also say, you know, a thing I love about the books is, um, and I'm proud of, 
you can read them in order. You can kind of pick one up and go, I'm going to read a random story like while I'm waiting for the bus. Um, but you can also go, oh, like I just saw Hamilton at the Richard Rogers Theater. I want to learn about the Richard Rogers or even like I'm going to see Hamilton and you pick up the book. And um, it always is my favorite thing when actors in current Broadway shows will be like, oh, my God, like we keep your book in the uh, green room because um, everyone at the Winter Garden is always wanting to learn about the Winter Garden. So we open that page. Um, but, you know, you can kind of go like I'm going to have this experience at this theater. I want to know like all the secrets of it and, and all the backstage stories and all of that. Um, and you can also go like, oh, I've become obsessed with Spelling Bee, the musical recently. I'm going to find the Spelling Bee chapter and go deep in the in the backstage story. So um, you can kind of, there's just like a lot of choose your own adventure ways to read it, which I'm pretty proud of. I do that with every movie or TV show that I watch, like Only Murders in the Building. I will go look at the cast and I need to know who <laughs> those people are. Who are you? So I love that, that these books can be used as a resource for people that obsess over the background details like me. I think that's wonderful. Tell me about your, your writing process for this. And, and do, are you someone when you, when you write these books and you do the interviews and you, you know, uh, translate them, are you pretty organized when you do it? Or is it kind of all over the place? You can confess if you're not, it's okay. Because we do have some authors that listen to this and what's your process. How do you keep it all together with all those interviews? Some of it was like, you know, obviously learn as you go. Like I had no idea the project was going to be as big when it started. And now that there's so many interviewees, it, it does require a different kind of organization. Um, truly one of the ways is Sierra Fox, who's my book assistant. She's like the most, she literally, you know, we haven't been actively working on Untold Stories of Broadway in months, like since the fourth book came out. And at some point we'll start on the fifth, but she emailed me this morning and she was like, I was just thinking about this person and maybe we should do this so that we have their quotes. And I was like, Girl, like you're thinking about this. I haven't even like been actually working on this in months. Um, she's kind of the organizational secret. Like surround yourself with people who you trust, who are passionate about the things you're passionate about and who are like efficient and organized and have those skills. Um, and then, you know, my book editor, Roberta Pereira, is also like an angel of organization and notes. And, you know, when we do the back and forth a million times as she's editing chapters and, um, you know, it's so many like thank God for track changes. And, and we're, we're super organized about all that stuff. Um, there's some parts of it that I think are purposefully not as organized. Um, you know, when I'm trying to knit different stories together and come up with like, oh, this person spoke about this, so let's bring this in. Um, you kind of have to leave things a little bit messy just so you have the room to create new creative yes. ideas in your head. Um, but as oh, far as I the actual, <laughs> as far as the actual like interviewed this person this day this time the, these are the theaters they talked about like that is all pretty spreadsheeted and organized within an inch of its life so so i love it because i'm hearing what you're saying is um your process is very um very much what it is because of team that your team really just has their own parts to keep it organized but then you leave room for creative mess and and to be able to get experimental and change things. And I think that is so important because I think a lot of times when we talk about organization or decluttering or, you know, a well-oiled machine, often we think it's got to be sterile and just run, you know, one person's got their job, like hammering it all in, in, in as just one person does their thing and you better not mess it up and keep going. And the system has to be perfect. And it doesn't, you can have things that work and work over and over again. And, and we work as a team to make sure that we're all functioning and we know the system together, but then leaving that room to be a little bit messy and creative um, so that you don't get burned out. Totally. And it's something I think is important in all kind of creative exploits. Like 
knowing and I mean this is a huge thing with making the volume of shows happen at 54 below too it's like um we need to know certain things artists need to know certain things so we can have it all plugged into a system so you know like your show has to be this length or like this is when you get your marketing material or you know any number of logistical things which allow you to know the kind of structure and constraints so you can operate creatively within that without having to like worry about a lot of that stuff um I think it kind of frees you up the same way that having that like foundation of like safety respect and trust in any theater job helps um yeah I just I find that like a kind of great way to work um I'm someone that really functions well when it's like okay like you have an hour to write so write what you're gonna write in this hour rather than like take all the time you need you know like not just needing a deadline but like just knowing what you have to work with Absolutely. So let's talk about Tick, Tick, Boom. You were a historian consultant on that, right? Yes. um, It was truly like the honor and experience of a lifetime. I am so excited that that movie is out in the world now. Yes. Well, tell tell everybody what the movie is about first, and then let's go into your role on that. Because if you haven't seen it, y'all are missing out. This is, it's phenomenal. Yeah. So the movie is... uh, Jonathan Larson, who was an unbelievable, like once in a lifetime musical theater writer, sadly passed away um, when he was in his mid thirties, right before Rent kind of hit big, uh, which would have been a huge moment that he had been kind of waiting for his whole life. But before he wrote Rent, he wrote an autobiographical musical called Tick, Tick, Boom, which he wrote himself, you know, during his lifetime before he unexpectedly passed uh, to be performed by himself. And after he died, it was turned into a three person musical. And then it was now turned now has been turned into a many character movie um so it sort of took his autobiographical show that he wrote and then also the real life facts and stories and people in his life and turned them into a you know full-length motion picture um put together by you know the great Lin-Manuel Miranda, Steven Levinson, Julie O, all these really amazing creative people I got to work with on the movie um and, you know, it tells the story of Jonathan Larson's life as a writer, as a creative person in New York City at a time when, um, you know, New York City was in a different place than it's in now. Um, and his relationship with his girlfriend, his relationship with his best friend, um, a lot of like different interpersonal relationships in his life at the same time as he's trying to like write a great American musical. And you and what was it like working on that for you? How did you bring your expertise to it and really flesh that project out. So I first met Lin-Manuel when I was working on title of show. Uh, It was being produced Mm -hmm. by the same producing office as in the Heights. So we go way, way back. And a number of years ago, I've always loved Jonathan Larson's work and, um, you know, been super obsessed with Tick, Tick, Boom and his other shows. And I put together a little like mini concert at the city center before Encore's Tick, Tick, Boom, which Lin starred in, um, that was like underappreciated Jonathan Larson songs. It was just a few songs. Um, But at that point, um, I started being in touch with the family about expanding it into a a full evening of Jonathan's kind of completely unheard work. And Lynn, of course, was like there for that concert. We knew each other otherwise. And that project eventually became the Jonathan Larson Project, which was um, a show we did for, you know, 12 performances at 54 Below that I spent years researching at the Library of Congress that became this original song cycle um, incorporating like his political songs and his songs from projects that never got produced. And it became like, what if Jonathan Larson wrote his own new musical theater song cycle and performed it? And we luckily got to record it as a cast album in the studio from Ghostlight Records. Um, just so, so proud of that kind of whole thing. Um, and meanwhile, this whole time, 
I, uh, Lynn had been kind of percolating this. I've been using that word a lot today. I guess I need some more coffee. Lynn had been working on Tick, Tick, Boom as a movie. Um, and he knew I had been doing all this additional, like Jonathan Larson research and deep diving into Jonathan's tapes and files and papers at the library. So, um, Lynn brought me on board pretty early and said, you know, I would love for you to work on this as a historian and, um, you know, really dive into the research with us and help us go, okay, well, you know, in the show that Jonathan wrote, they're in his apartment, but like, what did his apartment actually look like and what would have been sitting on his desk at the time? And, um, Oh, would this person have been there? They're not there in the show, but that was his friend. You know, that's kind of like a basic micro way of looking at it, but it was a lot of kind of combining what Jonathan had written as Tick, Tick, Boom and his actual real life. And, you know, the people that he turned into characters, um, making sure that it all felt like very authentic to Jonathan, uh, you know, researching music that he had written that might be incorporated into the movie. Um, there's like a great moment in the film where Lynn and the team actually use a song that I discovered for the Jonathan Larson project that, um, you know, Jonathan had written, recorded, had never really been performed live I became obsessed with it Nick Blameyer sings it on the album and in the show in the John Flores part it's amazing and um they turned it for the movie into this part of Susan Jonathan's girlfriend's character's dance piece like um which Jonathan scored a lot of her dance pieces so that piece of music actually is in the movie as like a background Jonathan Larson scoring a dance piece moment um there's a lot of just like easter eggs all over the place of like oh Jonathan was obsessed with this so it's on the bookshelf um so I was around for a lot of that and kind of um lending like historian authenticity to a lot of it and the whole team I mean everyone was lending historian authenticity um I got to work a bit with each of the main actors to go like, oh, this is who this person really was. Here's a recording of them singing. This is when Jonathan met them. So, um, you know, that part of it was dramaturgical. People uh, who played real life, you know, characters in the movie or folks that were based on real life people um, having a lot of extra knowledge to go into it with of like their relationships with Jonathan in real life. Do you ever, when you're doing this research, do you ever feel like, you're too in too deep. You're like, I got to stop. This is, I'm going real deep on this. It's been hours. It's been days. You're like, pull out of it. <laughs> it was so emotional. Like it was one of my favorite things I've ever gotten to do. Like going to the library of Congress in Washington, DC and, um, you know, spending a couple days, several different times looking through all of his tapes and listening to Jonathan's voice in my ears singing a song nobody knew and um, connecting the pieces of like, oh, this note must be about this project. Um, yeah, it was the most incredible trip as a theater story. And, and later on, I got to um, go down there with Lynn and Stephen Levinson, the screenwriter, and um, and kind of show them around the library as well with a lot of the amazing library staff. Um, but for me, those DC trips were, um, I would always like be alone. As you said, like I'd be in my cubicle, I'd be going deep. I'd be like really like emotional and learning about his life. And, you know, he was a human being like with, it's so like we get away from that because he became this like mythical creature, but, um, really getting to know him as well as you can without actually having known him kind of reading his stuff. And then it was just so fun because every night in DC, the library would close at five and I would like kind of go see a local production. I saw so many like random, you know, amateur school, like local DC productions. And it was kind of a way to like get myself a little out of it at the time. Um, but it's something yeah. I think about a lot now of like how lucky to go do research 
every day in a different city and then like walk around the Capitol and then, you know, like go see a random production of Gospel and Colonus at like a hole in the wall theater um, that was so great filled with DC actors. It was like the Washington DC experience of a lifetime for me. <laughs> see, I'm originally from the DC area. And so now I'm, when I go home next month, I'm, I'm like, look, I never had the DC theater experience. I was in, you know, small productions as a kid, but I didn't do, really do anything see anything professional i think i saw one ballet and there was like the reenactment of lincoln getting shot that's pretty much then the battlefield reenactments that's all that's all i've seen in professional dc so now i gotta go home and go deep into this but isn't it just beautiful though when you do that whole tour of all the monuments though did you get to do that yeah, I mean, I, I did all of it, like, interspersed with Jonathan Larson research. So, you know, it's, yeah. I remember, like, I went to the Library of Congress the weekend after the 2016 election to do research. Yeah. And that was a wild time to be walking around D.C. Like, it all kind yeah. of is connected. And, you know, there's so much. I, I spent some time at the Signature and Arena Stage and, like, the Kennedy Center, like, professional theaters as well. Um, Really just, I love that city. What a great theater yeah. and otherwise city. I love what you touched on when you said you were getting kind of too deep into your work and you needed to go and loosen up a little bit, go see these shows. Um, I think that's so important for people that are getting in too deep, not just with their focus on one you know, aspect of their work, but in life. Like Sometimes we just focus on the hard things and the things we haven't done or completed yet, the work that's in front of us, or you know, maybe difficult family dynamics. And it, that's why art's so important, either as an expression from yourself or to consume. Um, and I, I love that that was an outlet for you in between your work. It wasn't just all work and no play. Um, do you find that you do that a lot for yourself, that you are able to really detach and take a break and do something enjoyable? And at what point um, do you know for yourself? Like, what's your your indicator for yourself that it's time, you know, to go you know enjoy something? Yeah, I, I've gotten better at it over the years. Um, still always could use work. But I find that the thing that's most helpful for me is like making a decision and sticking with it. Um, that, you know, like after I finish this, I'm going to read a book or like after I finish this, I'm going to go for a long walk or I'm going to listen to this music or like, you know, I have to kind of structure it. Um, you know, cause we all are in danger of like scrolling on our phones and, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing that if it's what you want or need, or, you know, you're balancing that with other things or it's right for you, whatever. But, um, I really have to go like, oh, I think it's going to be good for my brain if I like cook a meal or hang out with another person or, you know, um, and that, that's something that I think I had like a very, um, conscious decision to get better at during COVID and like during lockdown when we didn't have control over it. And I felt like if I wasn't like working on something that I could do remotely or, you know, working on some writing, you know, the limp, the options were so limited. And now that they're thankfully a bit less limited, it's going like, Oh, I want to like treasure the time that I know I have to like be in a room with other humans or um, go see yeah. a show or, um, you know, really being grateful for that and making sure that it's like as balanced as it can be. Um, you know, I find I'm a better writer when I'm out in the world also seeing theater. I'm a better writer when I make time to read as well as write. Like, I think it all is helpful in just making sure you're not like laser focused other than like, you know, the, the end of the deadline moments when you have to be. Yeah. And seeing shows like the ones you you uh, run at 54 Below, 
people come out of there joyful and relaxed and excited, don't they? It's like you just had a break and then you ex it's an experience. It's not you're not having to do the work. You're just listening and consuming. Yeah. And it's great. You know, it's experience. been so like, you know, fascinating in the being closed for so many months for the pandemic and then reopening. But like in a small way and in a kind of distanced way and, and slowly getting to, um, you know, with small hiccups, go back to, you know, we'll, we'll never go back to normal. It's like the world only spins forward, but really getting to return to some of the elements of live performance that you can only have in a room together, making music and surprising an audience and clapping together and laughing together and hearing singers in the room with you. Um, that's something so special about 54 Below that I think people have treasured as even more special after we weren't able to be in the same room together. Um, yeah, it's just, it's not like anything else. And, you know, as we've said, it's different. It's not the same show every night. You never know what's going to happen. Um, it's just things that like, you know, I think streaming is so wonderful. I'm so glad it's like provided more access, but you can never replicate what theater and what live performance is, which is actually being in the room with other humans, which is like, a tale as old as time in the caves you yeah. know so um i find it even more powerful to like get to be at 54 below after the lockdown era so everybody out there that means that when you take your new york trip you have, you have to go check out jennifer at 54 below and all her shows and see the magic she produces over there um i wanted to ask you one last question what is the one thing you're not great at staying organized or what kind of clutter do you accumulate? Give us the, the dirty details. Oh my God, this is such a great question. I feel like I'm not alone in this. And again, like it relates to pandemic, but like, why do I have so many clothes? Why are they everywhere? Like, why can I not get rid of clothes? I, I feel like I, I just... <laughs> The thing is, I feel like I used to wear everything. And now that we're like often like I'm wearing pajama pants with my nice shirt. So, you know, um, it's I'm like, you know, we're going out in the real world again, but I'm confused about how often or what clothes I still need. And I just find that it's like a little bit chaotic in terms of like keeping my own space, like how it needs to be like. I just, I don't, we're not going to have like an end to the pandemic. So what, like, I haven't worn a blazer in three years. I don't know if yeah. I'm ever going to like, why are they there? Um, I've been on the struggle bus with like, I'm someone who loves like spring cleaning and getting rid of stuff you're not wearing. And I have yeah. no idea what that is anymore. So just yeah. try and. <laughs> I love that. Everybody, I, you know, this pandemic really th threw us all for a loop. It's, it's like anything I was good at before. I don't know anymore. Something different's happened. I used to wear nice clothes, but now I love my comfy clothes. I started shopping on Amazon for, there's a package a day. It gives me a little, you know, serotonin boost. Like there's just, it just changed everything. And it's like, how do we get out of that now, I know. You know. And I said this, I was at 54 below last night and like, I was happy to be wearing a nice dress, but I was like, decidedly not wearing super nice shoes. And I was like, I don't think I'll ever go back to it. Then what am I doing with all these shoes? Like, it's silly to kind of reduce it to clothes. Cause you're right. It is everything. It's like so many little things yeah. that are different about our behavior now. Um, that I don't know, it's taking some time to recalibrate, especially when things are constantly changing in terms of like the world and what feels safe and what's required for work. And um, yeah, I think we've all been through a lot. We should all just like keep trying to give ourselves a break on this stuff. One thing that I, I've found myself doing since we've been unleashed back into the wild now is that I will dress up, but I will also bring a bag that 
that has extra stuff in it that's comfortable because I'm like, I will look good for this one hour and then I'm going into the bathroom and I'm putting like stretch pants on or sandals or something. It's like, I will not go out of the house unless it's like a very specific type of event. I will not go out of the house without a little something extra in my purse. And it's like, totally. oh my God, you can't even go out and have a day. <laughs> no, totally. Stay prepared. I think that's great. <laughs> Just embrace it. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me today. I think this people are going to be so inspired by everything you do and just the way you've pulled together theater and creating, um, you know, just these memories for people that they might not necessarily have ever that have been would have been lost in history. And um, I just I'm such a big fan of the work you do and that you continue to do. So uh, everyone, you need to check out um, Jennifer's book on books on Amazon, The Untold Stories of Broadway. There are four volumes and you're you are just going to be fascinated by the information and the stories told there get down to 54 below if you're in new york city and thank you so much for uh being here today i appreciate it yeah thank you thank you for having me and thank you for putting such like good positive um work out into the world oh thank you i appreciate that jennifer ashley tepper everybody get down to 54 below in new york city <laughs> As usual, I am so happy you all are here on The Big Let Go. I am your professional organizer and declutter expert, Monica Fay. You can find me on Instagram at Miss Monica Fay or go on thebigletgo.com and download your free workbook on the 60-minute declutter so you can let go without pain and problems and just eliminating some of that stress when you are trying to declutter. Till next time, uh, it's a good day to have a good day and let's keep this momentum going.